I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 13. I know we read it, but we're going to reference it. We're going to flip around a little bit this morning uh, in that chapter. So you can find Hebrews 13. You can take the notes out if you like to follow along with the outline. This is the final chapter of Hebrews. It's the end of the summer, and I hope our time in Hebrews over the summer has been helpful for you as you think about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. Not just what does it mean to make a decision about Jesus, or what does it mean to pray a prayer, or what does it mean to invite Jesus into my heart, what does it mean to be baptized, but what does it mean to actively follow Jesus. I have some regret that we couldn't talk about all of the things that we could have talked about in Hebrews, and there were a lot of them. There were a lot of things where we could have just sort of hit the pause button and dug down deep and talked about uh, different people, different questions, different issues, different points that are raised. But I think moving quickly over the summer also helped us see the big idea of the book. And sometimes if you can get the big idea of where a book is headed, some of the smaller things can fall into place. And so one last time, the big idea of the book of Hebrews as a whole, it's sort of a dual purpose. Negatively, this book is written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. There's warnings. They start early and they run all the way through the very end of the book. Do not turn back from following Jesus. And the positive side of that is that there's encouragement to persevere in the faith. Hang in there. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep repenting. Keep following after Jesus. Don't turn back, but keep pressing on in faith as a follower of Jesus. In chapter 13... Uh, there's just a couple of things I want to point out. They come at the very end of the chapter. There's sort of a, a personal exchange at the end of this letter. And there's just a few things I want to mention. One is there's an ambiguous reference to Timothy, and that is one of the pieces of the puzzle. It's not the only piece, but it's one of the pieces of the puzzle that some people take away and say, I think Paul wrote this letter. And so you see the reference in verse 23, you know that our brother Timothy has been released. Presumably he's been in prison. We assume he's been in prison for preaching the gospel. And now he's been released. And there's some hope that whoever wrote this letter is going to be reunited with Timothy. And maybe the two of them will go visit the original audience of this letter together. We know that Paul and Timothy went on mission trips together. So we know there was a connection there. We know that Paul wrote two letters to Timothy as a young pastor, sort of encouraging him and directing him and mentoring him. And so some people say, look, Paul seems like a natural fit of somebody who had a close relationship with Timothy, who would have partnered up with him when he gets out of prison and gone on some sort of trip. This is the only reference we know to Timothy being in prison, so we don't have a whole lot of detail about what was going on and why he was there and how long he was there. And while this could be a piece of the puzzle that connects Paul to the letter, it's really not enough by itself to make you think that Paul wrote it. So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, could be Paul, may not be Paul. There's another reference, it's also ambiguous, and it's a reference in verse 24 to those who come from Italy. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. And you can dig into the original language here if you're so inclined. Uh, no one really knows what this means. 
Does this mean people who are in Italy are sending greetings to people who are outside of Italy? Does this mean people who once were in Italy and they were forced to leave because of persecution are send, sending greetings back to people in Italy? We just don't know. But some people pull this little personal reference and they try to say maybe the letter was written from Rome, from Italy. Maybe the letter was written to Rome, to Italy. And the short answer is we just don't have enough to know for certain. We do know the big idea of this last chunk of verses, and here it is. Believers are called to offer acceptable worship to God. Believers are called to offer acceptable worship to God. I'm not going to make a big point of this this morning, but by definition, if there is such thing as acceptable worship, there must be something as unacceptable worship. And we're not going to dig into that too much, but I just want you to think through it. The call here is to offer acceptable worship to God. And I understand that I'm pulling that big idea, not from chapter 13, but from chapter 12. If you look at chapter 12, verse 28, the previous chapter ends with a call. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. And at the end of chapter 12, you're left with the question, well, what does it look like to offer acceptable worship? If that's what I'm called to do, how do I do it? And the last chapter of the book of Hebrews answers that question. And there's a pattern towards the end of Hebrews. If you look at the beginning of Hebrews 12, there's a call to run with endurance the race that is set before us. You read that at the beginning of 12 and you say, how do I do that? What does it look like to run with endurance this race? And the author goes on and he describes it. This is what it looks like to run with endurance. In the end of chapter 12, there's this call to be grateful for this kingdom and offer to God acceptable worship. And you're wondering, how do I do that? And the final verses of the book of Hebrews answer that question. I was surprised in my study this week how many commentators basically said, it's the end of the letter, he's just kind of trying to put a bow on it, and it's just rapid fire, he's throwing things out there. And these things really don't have anything to do with each other. He's just saying all the little things he didn't already have a chance to say in the letter. Maybe he's got writer's cramp and he's trying to cut it short. Maybe he's running out of time and he's trying to just bullet point this thing. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I don't think this last chapter is just a random collection of exhortations. I think they all fall, fall under this heading of what does it look like for you and I to offer acceptable worship to God? The one true God who is a consuming fire and has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let me just start off saying a word about worship. Uh, one of the guys I like to read and listen to, don't always agree with him, but really like him and am challenged by him, is a guy named Tom Rainer. Uh, Rainer was the president and CEO of Lifeway, which is sort of the publishing side of the Southern Baptist Convention. He just uh, retired from that role a few months ago, and he's still active uh, put retired in quotes. He's still very much active in blogging and consulting and podcasting and different things. And I get his blog sent to my email and I read it. And sometimes they're interesting and sometimes they're not. But one of the ones that caught my eye a couple of months ago was entitled Nine Trends in Church Worship Services. Nine Common Trends. Here's his nine trends. He's not saying these are good or bad. He's just saying these are trends. Number one, choirs are disappearing. Number two, dress is more casual. 
Number three, screens, meaning what you're reading right now, screens are pervasive. Number four, preaching is longer. Amen to that one. Number five, multi is normative, and what he means is multi-location. Sort of this ties in with the idea of screens. You have one church, and they have multiple locations, and they have a band, but then they throw the screen up, and somebody preaches from one location in multiple places. So multi is normative. It's becoming more common. Number six, attendees are more diverse, meaning the people who are worshiping together on the whole are not quite as homogenous as they once were in the Sunday morning hour. Uh, Number seven, conflict is not increasing. There was a day and a time where that would not have been a trend in church worship services where conflict was very much increasing, but that's not the case today. Number eight, more attendees are attending larger churches. And he doesn't really define larger, smaller there. He's just saying more people are going to bigger churches, fewer people are going to smaller churches. And number nine, Sunday evening services are disappearing. Nine common trends in church worship services. Some of those things on that list I look at and I say, amen, that's a great thing. Some of those things I look at on that list and I sort of roll my eyes and say, I don't know if this is a good trend. And some of those trends you look at and they just are what they are. They're not really good or bad. It's just a trend. It's a change. That sort of thing happens. When I say to you, that the final chapter of Hebrews explains to us how to offer acceptable worship to God, many of us naturally think about these sorts of things. It's because we think about worship as what happens in the first part of the Sunday morning service, and then we break for the sermon, and then we come back for the last part of the worship before we leave for lunch. That's sort of our category for worship. And when I say here are trends in worship, you may say, well, you know, maybe this has some bearing on offering acceptable worship. What's interesting is when you read the final chapter of Hebrews, we've already read it, he doesn't talk about that stuff. None of those things really particularly, and very few of those things even generally, it's really not the focus of what he's talking about when he talks about offering acceptable worship to God. In fact, If you don't pay close attention, you may look at this last chapter and say, well, it's just a bunch of sort of random things he throws in at the end. But if you remember that the original author did not put these chapter and verse markers in it, he didn't intend for you to have a hard break between 12 and 13. The argument just kept going. And you leave off with this call, let us offer acceptable worship to God then you realize this last chapter is actually telling me how to do that. And this last chapter, as you and I read it, may challenge some of our assumptions about what worship is. And it's not that it takes sides in those sorts of things. It's that it introduces issues that you may not even think are part of worship at all. It brings up topics that you say, well, what does that have to do with worship? And if you read this last chapter with the call to offer acceptable worship and you don't see the connection, the problem for you and for me is probably that our definition of worship is too narrow. We think worship is this one singing activity that we do in church, or maybe it's this one singing activity I do in my car with the radio on when no one else is with me. 
And the book of Hebrews in this final chapter is saying, no, 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 as the people of God, you're going to press on. You're not going to turn back from following Jesus. You're going to run the race of the Christian life with endurance, and you're going to offer to God acceptable worship. And here's what acceptable worship looks like. And the challenge for you and I this morning is to be willing to expand our horizons on what worship is and to submit our thoughts and our lives to what acceptable worship actually looks like. So how do you do it? We're going to offer acceptable worship. How does that play out in our lives? Four thoughts. Number one, acceptable worship includes our human relationships. Is not just... In the garden, me and the Lord alone, and we have this sweet time, and that's it, me and God. But your worship of the Lord, the one who's a consuming fire, actually includes your relationships with other people. And I just want to point out some of these. Verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 13 talks about believers, right? brotherly love. That's love for your church members. And he's assuming that they love each other now, and he wants that to continue. Don't stop doing that. Love each other, right? Church members, you're in this together. You should love each other. That's part of your worship. Look at verse 2. He talks about hospitality to strangers. And there's sort of a, a strange reference, an odd reference to angels here that I think goes back to Abraham and Lot in Genesis 18 and 19. And you can really go down a rabbit trail of what does this look like in our lives today and Abraham and Lot and angels, what are we talking about? But the main point is pretty obvious. Be hospitable. Not just to the people in your Sunday school class, not just to the people who sit next to you, but even to people you don't know. Show hospitality, even to strangers. Verse 3. He talks about those who are in prison. Remember them. Don't forget those people. Right? Treat them as if you're actually in there with them. Care for them. Pray for them. Think of them. Visit them. He talks about not just people in prison, but those who are mistreated. And I think that that certainly could include people who are mistreated for the sake of the gospel. But I think it could also include just people in everyday life who tend to fall through the cracks. Right? The least among us that Jesus called us to care for and to love for and to give them a cup of cold water and to clothe them and to feed them. Care for those people. Remember those people. Right? Your worship is not just what you sing to God, but it includes all of these people. He talks about spouses. Let marriage be held in honor. Right? Let the marriage bed be undefiled. You say, well... How do you hold marriage in honor? Does that mean that we've we got to stand for a traditional view of marriage? It does mean that, but it means more than that. You can stand for a traditional view of marriage, and your marriage can be a train wreck. Right? You can have the right definition of what marriage ought to be, and you may not be living it out in any way, shape, or form. Right? We're going to hold it in honor. We're going to set an example for people in what that looks like. And I just want you to think about this variety of people who have been thrown out in our human relationships, right? We're talking about believers and we're talking about strangers. We're talking about people separated from us like prisoners and mistreated folks, and we're talking about people as close as our spouse, right? This is not just a random bullet list of people that you need to care for. This is the author of Hebrews saying, offer acceptable worship to the Lord, that means your relationships have got to be marked by love. If your relationships with other people are not marked by love, don't tell me about how great the worship was. That's part 
of offering acceptable worship to the Lord. As Americans, I I just think we get it wrong. Our culture is so individualistic, right? We just really believe I can do my own thing in spiritual terms, can have my own personal relationship with the Lord. How many times have you heard people talk about that? My personal relationship with the Lord. And sometimes we hear those sorts of phrases and it just sort of sinks into our hearts and our minds that other people don't matter. I can be right with the Lord and no one else has any bearing on that. And the book of Hebrews is saying nothing could be further from the truth. If you're going to offer acceptable worship to the Lord, your, your human relationships have to be marked by love. And this is not new. This is not like the author of Hebrews is just making up something new. Look what Jesus says. John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Here's the new part because that commandment to love your neighbor is in the Old Testament. Here's the new part. Just as I have loved you sacrificially when you didn't deserve it, when you were unworthy of it, when you weren't even looking for it. Just like I loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's got to be the hallmark of our relationships as followers of Jesus and expand your view of worship. This is not just how you treat others. This is how you worship the Lord in an acceptable way. It's how the world looks at us and knows that our relationship with the Lord is right. There's an old Christian. If you don't know who this guy is, you should look him up. He's one of the coolest dudes who has ever lived. His name is Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer says this. He says, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks. They even had special haircuts. But there's a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. And of course, he's talking about love. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. And the author of Hebrews is reminding us that our worship to God is connected with our human relationships and how we love each other. Number two, acceptable worship includes our finances. Our finances. This is another one of the parts of chapter 13 where someone might say he's just throwing in one last reminder, but I think it's more than that. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Not free from money, free from the love of money. That's what Paul warned Timothy about, right? The love of money is a root of all kinds of different evil. Not just money, but loving money is a root of all sorts of evil. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why should I be content? Because you have a promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. You have the same promise. We can confidently say, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is not new. right? This call to love other people is not new. This warning about money is also not new. Look what Jesus said. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You will have to make a choice. It may be a conscious decision or it may just be one that you sort of slide into in default mode, but you can't serve both. You can't love 
both. You say, how do I know if I love money? We live in the richest country in the world. We have more than anyone in the history of mankind. How do I know if I love money? Let me just give you a few words. Number one, greed. Greed is just the desire in your heart to have more. I just want more. If I just have more, it will make me happy. It will make me satisfied. Maybe envy. Envy isn't so much concerned with more for more sake. Envy is concerned with more because your neighbor has more. I just want what he has. I just want as much as she has. I just want to be better off than the next guy. Sometimes it can just be money for money's sake. Sometimes it can be money for sort of appearances sake or, or status sake. Maybe spending. Maybe just out of control spending. Maybe spending is sort of your go-to for making yourself feel better about life. Maybe you, you like to go to the mall and spend. Maybe you like to get on Amazon and spend. But maybe just out of control, compulsive spending would be an identifier to you that maybe money and wealth and possessions is something that you love. Or maybe the flip, maybe hoarding. Maybe you don't spend anything. Maybe you just want to keep it all. And when you keep it all, you feel safer and you feel more secure and you think that nothing can harm you, and you think you're ready for anything, and it causes you to be self-sufficient, any of these things could be an indicator that the love of money is a problem in your life. And the antidote to all of it is contentment. Contentment. He says, don't love money, but be content with what you have. That doesn't mean that you don't ever try to improve your lot in life. That means you don't try to improve your lot in life for more security or just more comfort or just so you can be as as well off as the next guy or just because you think you'll find happiness or identity in more. And contentment is rooted in knowing God. That's what he says here in chapter 13. How can I be content with what I have? I have to remind myself that God will never leave me or forsake me. Right? That's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about all the things all these other people worry for. Chase after the kingdom. You have a Father who cares for you. Fix your eyes on God, not on money. And he says the same thing here. He'll never leave you, forsake you. The Lord is your helper. Why would you be afraid? Human beings can do nothing to you. The Lord is your helper. We're fixing our eyes on God as the source of our contentment. Now, I don't know about you, but Odessa seems to be a place that gets a little bit crazy about money sometimes. Uh, I just think the nature of our economy causes us to kind of swing in polar extremes. When times are good here, we probably tend to fall on that spending side of things and the envy side of things and the, the greed side of things. And when things are bad, we might tend to fall on the hoarding side of things. And it can be difficult when you live in an economy like ours to sort of balance yourself on this issue of money. And I don't know about you, but it seems like everyone you know has advice about money. You ever feel that way? Like everyone in my life has money advice for me. And sometimes you just need to consider the source of who is giving you money advice. Like everyone you know might say, here's a way to make a buck. Here's a way to save a buck. Here's a way to make your buck go a little bit further. But all those same people seem to be chasing more and more bucks. Like they don't have enough of the bucks. And so you got to think about the advice that you hear and that you take and that 
you receive when it comes to money. Here's a few pieces of money advice I found this week that I like. If you think no one cares that you're alive, try missing a couple of mortgage payments. I promise you, people care that you are alive or that you're not alive. Here's another one. Always borrow money from pessimists. They don't expect to be paid back. It's a good piece of advice. And I really like this next one. Check this out. If you lend someone 20 bucks and you never see them again, it was probably worth it. (laughs) Best 20 bucks I ever spent in my life. Some of you are thinking about a face right now and you're like, amen. That was a $20 well spent. Here's one more piece of money advice, and I think it comes from what we're talking about in Hebrews 13. If you want to master money, you've got to be mastered by God. You've got to know Him. You've got to submit to Him. Not just in a begrudging way, but in a joyful way. And you've got to know that the Lord is your helper. He will never leave you or forsake you. In particular, here's some things that you've got to be mastered by. Attributes of God that you've got to know. Number one, His benevolence. He is kind and He is good. Even when you don't think he's good to you, he is. He is always good. By his very nature, he is good. Omniscience. He knows. He knows your finances better than you know them. He knows your needs better than you know them. He's not aware, excuse me, not unaware of the needs that you have in your life. And coupled with that, he's wise. He knows what's best for you. Every one of us thinks a little bit more would make my situation better. How presumptuous of us to think that we know better than God what's good for us. He knows everything. He's wise. And His sovereignty. He's in complete control. If He wants to give you the cattle on a thousand hills, they're His to give. If He doesn't give them to you, it's not because His hands are tied. It's because He doesn't see fit. You've got to be mastered by God if you want to master money. You can't serve both. You can only serve one. You will love one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Not only is acceptable worship bound up in our human relationships, it's also bound up with our checkbooks, with our bank accounts. So we're going to approach worship with a, a mind towards our finances Number three, acceptable worship includes a church family. We had a new member class this morning. I'm going to introduce you to some new members in a minute. Part of offering acceptable worship to the Lord is being an active, regular, consistent part of a church family. And again, just to admit this, to acknowledge this, this is not the predominant idea in the United States of America. right? We live in a day and a time when people are not necessarily cashing in belief in God. They're still willing to identify as spiritual. They're still willing to say, I believe there's a higher power. But they are not quite so interested, and this is an increasing trend, in organized religious practice. I'm just going to do it by myself. Your relationships are part of your worship, and your church family is part of your worship. Look what he says in chapter 13, verse 7. He talks about church leaders. I just want you to see all the things he says here that revolve around church life. Okay, Verse 7, he's talking about church leaders. 
Verse 9, there's a warning about strange teaching, diverse and strange teaching. Can I be honest with you? Social media should not be your filter for diverse and strange teaching. The internet should not be your filter for what is diverse and strange teaching. The local church is supposed to be your filter for what is diverse and strange teaching. That's not to say the internet can't help you. That's just to say the internet can make you crazy. We're talking about church life. Be careful about diverse and strange teaching. Verse 15, he's talking about together we're going to offer a sacrifice of praise. Did you notice the plural pronoun? It's not you, singular, offer the sacrifice of praise. It's let us together offer the sacrifice of praise. Look at verse 17. He talks about church members submitting to their leaders. And he talks about church leaders keeping watch over souls job of the church leader is not to manage a budget or a building or a program. job of a church leader is to shepherd souls, to care about the people in their care. And the job of the church is not to nitpick everything the pastor does, but is to imitate their faith and follow the example of their faith. Not the example of their foul-ups, but the example of their faith. Think about their faith and imitate that. Remember your leaders, he says. Verse 16, he talks about doing good and sharing. Really hard to do good and share all by yourself. How are you going to do good to others and share what you have if it's just you and the Lord? That requires community. It requires church family. Verse 18, there's a plea for prayer. Please pray for us. I'm begging you to pray for us. Verse 19, he says, I hope that I'm going to be restored to you. I don't want to be separated from you. I want to be with you in relationship and in community. Right? Everything in this section, 7 down to verse 19, just over and over, he's talking about church life, church life, church life. And he's saying, if you're going to offer acceptable worship to the Lord, church has to play a key, a central role in that. So many things I could say. I'll just mention two things quickly. Just this week, I've talked to pastors who were very spun up about people in their congregation who were not following or submitting. I mean, very spun up. And none of you, but I've talked to other church members this week of other churches who have been very spun up about what their pastor was or wasn't doing. And I'm not talking about morality, clear biblical issues. I'm just talking about sort of personal preference stuff. And this just kind of reminds me, sometimes churches can get in a a crazy zone, sort of like a husband and a wife having marriage problems. Sometimes I meet with a a spouse uh, or a couple of spouses, husband and wife, and the wife thinks, my husband is the problem in this marriage, and if you could fix him, things would be great. And coincidentally, when you talk to that husband, he says, my wife is crazy. If you could just fix her, this would all be perfect. There's no hope for that couple. No hope. There's also no hope for a pastor who sees his his people as the problem. And there's no hope for a group of people who see their pastor as the sole problem. And there's a relationship here that the author of Hebrews is describing where he says, look, submit to your leaders. Follow their example. Do it with joy. Do it in a way that they don't have to grumble about it. But he's also saying to the pastors, you better be caring for souls. You better be not building your own kingdom, but you better be building the Lord's kingdom and caring for the people who have been entrusted to you. And all of it, 
He's talking about our church family. And you look at those verses, I'll be honest with you. I talked to the, you know, the pastor guys this week and I talked to some church people this week. And you read the standard that's set forth here and you say, oh boy, how are we going to do that? I mean, how in the world are we going to do it? And it's not because you're the greatest church members that we're going to do it. And it's not because I'm the greatest pastor that we're going to do it. We're going to do it because Jesus is at the center of the church. And in all of these verses that talk about church life, don't miss what it says about Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered and he shed his blood to make his people holy. Pastors, your people aren't the problem. Your people are the very reason Jesus suffered and shed his blood. Care for their souls. Look what he says in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Pastors come and go. Church members come and go. Pastors have good days and bad days. Church members have good days and bad days. If you're hanging it all on a pastor, you're hanging it all on a congregation, you're hanging it in the wrong spot. The constant in all of it, the hope in all of it is Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever. The one who suffered and shed his blood to make this, not this building, but this group of people. Acceptable worship includes our church family. One last thought, acceptable worship requires God's grace. It requires his grace. Look at verse 20 and verse 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, here's the actual request. Verse 20, now may God do something. And he qualifies who God is and he qualifies who Jesus is. But here's the actual request. What is it you want the God of peace to do? Verse 21, the prayer is that he would equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look, all this stuff we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews, I can't do it for myself, much less for you. We can't do it on our own. right? All these calls, don't turn back from following Jesus. Press on in faith. Run this race set before you with endurance. Offer acceptable worship to God. Everything in this book sort of builds up to this last admission in verse 21. God, we can't do it. This is what you're calling us to do. You want us to run a race, and you want us to offer acceptable worship, and you want us to persevere in the faith, and you want us to not turn back from following Jesus. And God, we just need to stop at the end of this and admit we're going to need some help. We're going to need your help. And you're up for the help because you're the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. You're the God of peace who sent his son to save your enemies, to bring peace and reconciliation and relationship. 
right? You went to that great length to make peace with us while we were your enemies. Now that we've been brought into your kingdom, now that we've been brought into your family, we need you to hang on to us because we certainly can't hang on to you. We are completely dependent on God's grace for these things to be true. And I think that's a great place to end with the book of Hebrews. Just a simple acknowledgement. God, if this is what you're calling us to, we need you. We need you to come through. Because left to ourselves, we're going to make a mess of it. We're going to slowly drift away. Right? We're going to destroy this thing you've given us called the church, this thing you've called us into. And what we need is more and more of your grace. And so that's how we're going to end this morning. That's how we're going to end the book of Hebrews. Simply asking God to work in us what's pleasing according to his will. Let's pray.